Welcome to Find Your Niche, a career podcast offering advice that you can implement today, as well as career tips that will set you on a career path and help you to find your niche. I'm Lori Cole, certified career coach and job search advisor with iHire. iHire connects you to industry-specific jobs in over 57 talent communities. Find your niche today on iHire. If you're looking for a new job in 2023, then you are in the right place and I am going to help you rock your job search. Okay, pop quiz. What is the biggest mistake people make when they first start looking for a job? Well, they just start shotgunning their resume out there without a plan. They don't have a clear picture of what they're looking for. They have no idea what their value is in the marketplace, and they don't know what skills the industry considers must-haves to get their foot in the door. That's why people get frustrated and give up their search. They figure it's just easier to stay put and deal with whatever it is that they're dealing with at work. Fill in the blank, bad manager, low pay, or no work-life balance. Success is about doing the right thing at the right time. So before you start applying for jobs, here are the six things you need to do first. Here are the latest trends, topics, and tips that will help you in your job search. Number one, set up a dedicated work area in your home. This will get you into the job search mindset every time you sit down there. This should be a comfortable area with no distractions and everyone in your household should understand that when you're there, you're in do not disturb mode. Number two, use Gmail or Outlook to create a new professional email account for this search. Having quick access to job alerts and email communications is important so you don't get distracted by ads and spam and personal messages in your existing personal account. Number three, set up a password manager if you don't already have one. You will be registering for a new account on a multitude of sites and password managers can really save you hours of time and there are a lot of good free options out there. Four, clean up your voicemail inbox and record a professional message. I have called so many candidates to set up interviews and hear something like, dude, you know what to do, leave a message. That does not make a great first impression with hiring managers. So make sure your voicemail doesn't get full because you don't want to miss an opportunity to interview because you didn't receive a message. Number five, clarify your career objectives or get career clarity. Are you switching careers or switching industries? Make sure you're researching job postings. Don't apply to anything yet, but make sure that you're researching those job postings and list the keywords you see repeated in those postings so you know what skills employers are looking for. Number six, establish your salary expectations. Get your ducks in a row and create a budget. Then go to iHire's salary research tool. We allow you to research salaries by job title and location so you know your sweet spot and you don't price yourself out of the market, but you're asking enough so you're well paid for the position. If you do all of these things, you will set yourself up for success 
and lay a very solid foundation for the next steps in your search. My guest today is Andres Lars from Shapiro Negotiations Institute, where he manages the day-to-day operations, and he's also the author of the book Persuade, the four-step process to influence people and decisions. His company is doing some pretty cool things in the areas of virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and role play simulations for sales training. Andres outlines his path to his current role, as well as the four steps that will make you more persuasive in any negotiation. Let's hear from today's featured guests who has found their niche. Tell us about who you work for and what you do. Yeah, so I uh, I manage the Shapiro Negotiations Institute. So it's a negotiation influence sales training company. And so we typically work with kind of Fortune 5000, so enterprise level companies. And so they bring us in to train really just about anyone. The most common is salespeople or procurement people. But certainly we do a lot of training of leaders. Uh, we can do a lot of training of managers, of uh, engineers, project managers, so really just about everything, but you, you know, the most, the most impact, at least for negotiations often on the buy side of the sell side and in the influencing, it's really almost communication training. So that's what we do. We also do a little bit of advising as well. So it will come to us after training or, or if they haven't done training, but Hey, I've got a very complicated negotiation coming up or situation. Can you help me with it? So that's kind of what we do. And then all over the world. Tell me about your background. How did you get into this? What, what's your schooling background? Yeah. So a good question, and I think uh, very much in line with kind of the mantra of this podcast by by flute, really. So uh, I went to uh, to undergrad in uh, in Canada, and then uh, I found my way to Ohio University. So I went to Ohio University. I wanted to work in sports. So I played my whole life, and I wanted to work in sports. And I went there because they uh, I was able to pursue my MBA, but also a Master of Sports Administration. And uh, so I went there, and so I made all my networkers really in the states, right? And so no longer it just kind of made it less and less like that to go back to canada and so i worked then for uh, briefly for an nfl agent down in atlanta i worked for the eagles for a little while and then by total fluke so we were founded by a gentleman named ron shapiro and so he is uh, one of the most kind of influential agents in the history of baseball uh, i essentially met ron right as he was doing a couple of big negotiations at the time so this is uh, about 2009 and so he is. He was looking to expand the sports practice a little bit. And so I came to Baltimore thinking I was only going to be here for one project, short time. Uh, so my now wife, then girlfriend, I said, no, don't bother coming. And so as in many other things in life, I was way wrong. So now 12, almost 13 years later, still in Baltimore, uh, two kids later. But I just literally met him at a conference and, and uh, it was a project-based kind of start. And then about five years ago, he stepped uh, away and uh, to kind of slow things down and, and I took over the, the business. So it was more luck than anything. But what I really appreciated is I had worked for teams, but I really wanted to do more of the negotiation and strategy than anything else. And I, I wasn't set on one particular sport. And so th- that is the luck was that I didn't even know this existed when I went to school, even when I went to grad school, but it was finding this that now we advise on the sports side all over, right? We advise an NBA, NFL, MLB, but we also do a lot of corporate work and so it was it was exactly what I was looking for in a in something that I didn't know existed. Yeah. I, I mean it that's something that as a kid you're not gonna say, Oh, I want to do 
team negotiations, or I, yeah. I want to do this high-level negotiation. I don't for, think it's not quite as common as I want to be an astronaut, a doctor, you know, a fireman. Right. That's that's not quite as common in the what do you want to be when you grow up question. Right. So what do you think has been your biggest success factor? So, I, you know, I, I don't know that, uh, I mean, success, I think, is, you know, you're never really there, in my opinion. So it's hard to answer that. But I think, I mean, the answer, I think, for really for anyone should be hard work and luck, I think, are the biggest determinants, I think. And my personal opinion on that is those that are successful, I think, underappreciate how much of a factor luck is. And those that are not successful overappreciate, you know. And so, but I, I do believe certainly, you know, where it's lucky. So born in Venezuela, the fact that, you know, I mainly grew up in Canada, that's luck more than anything. I mean, that's, but that's also sacrifice for my parents. Same, right? Get make you know, and then moving to the states and the opportunities that came here. A lot of that's luck. I'd like to think that hard work and other aspects paid, you know, paid their dues as well. But but I think, in my opinion, that's that's a big part of it. It's not the sexiest answer, but I think I'd be foolish to not kind of appreciate the the role of all the things that have happened outside of my control. But I do think hard work and you know making good decisions and hard work give you kind of more roll the dice, if you will. So you got to get lucky to hit the you know hit the dice the way you want them. But I, hopefully hard work and, and good decisions will give you more rules. So let's pivot to the book a little bit. Tell us about the book that you've just written, Persuade. So one of the things that really kind of we noticed in the, in the book space, there's a million books on Persuade and Influencing. So it certainly is not the first. And there's a lot of very good ones. So what we found, though, is there really isn't any that have a kind of a systematic approach or a process, if you will. And the reason that really stuck out was that's what our company does. So if you think of our companies about systematizing anything. So because if Lori wants to get better at something, you can read a book, you can get a course, and that may help Lori. But if you want to really kind of systematize the entire organization, we'll do it better and then sustain it so that becomes a competitive advantage. You need a process because you need to have it repeatable and sustained. And so we noticed that's kind of what was missing. And that's really what we wrote is I would say to some degree, it's an aggregate of all of our research and our teaching combined with, we certainly reference other books because as we said, there's really some amazing books out there, some amazing research out there. And that's what this is to kind of put it into one process that someone could read regardless of experience and be able to put into play. So much of the job search process is about persuasion you are trying to persuade an, a company to look at your resume. You're trying to persuade an interviewer to invite you for that interview. You're trying to persuade them to give you the job offer. So tell us about the outline, this four-step process. And you had me at process and systems. I am all about that. I, I think that that is making it duplicatable and and just being able to do it over and over and tweak it and make it better as you go. I love that. And I've, I feel like in my life, I've been very good about setting up processes, setting up systems to, to be able to do those things. But tell us about the four steps of the negotiation and the persuasion process that you outline in your book. So there's four, four steps is what we outline. So they're building credibility. And, and really here, this is the core. Without credibility, you simply just can't get the other person's attention, right? So building credibility, the next is engage emotion. And so people make decisions emotionally, and then they justify them rationally. 
And so that's the key kind of phrase to remember. And so if you remember that, most people try to persuade others with logic. These are the seven ways you sh- or seven reasons you should do this. These are the five reasons you should hire me. And so there is a time and place for that, of course. But people are going to make that emotional decision. So you want to trigger some emotion before you get there. So then comes logic. There's the time and place for it. So then it's really about how do you comp- how do you communicate that logic in the most compelling manner. So those three first steps are actually based on Aristotle. And so I, I say that for two reasons. First of all, to give him credit, because rightfully so, 350 BC, he was teaching this, and he was way ahead of his time. No surprise. But the second reason I do that is as an example of building credibility. So for a listener that's listening, it's the first time they listen to me, or first time maybe they listen to your podcast, and they don't necessarily know, well, I potentially may not have credibility yet. Maybe you know someone's just listening in for the first time, and they don't know us or me. But if I borrow credibility from Aristotle, who most of us know and certainly have a lot of respect for, that would be an example of what folks can do if they don't have credibility. They can borrow it from a source that does have credibility. And so I bring that up to do both those things. So that's what he was teaching then. He was a brilliant philosopher. He wasn't necessarily always the most practical person. And so we added one piece, which we find at the end, which is the force that facilitate action. And so facilitate action is for anyone who you know can relate to this where now, what do you think of that, Lori? Is that a good idea? Yes, it is. Okay, so do we agree we're going to move forward? Yes, I do. And then two weeks later, I check in. Hey, Lori, how's that coming? Ooh, yeah, I haven't gotten to that yet. For anyone who can relate to that situation, how do you create an environment that makes it as likely as possible that what you want done will actually occur? So that's what facilitate action is all about. So those are the four steps. So, okay, credibility, engaging emotion, logic, and then facilitation. So let's dig into each one of those a little bit deeper if we could. So let's take it from the standpoint of a job seeker or or somebody that that is out there. They are trying to get people to look at their resume and interview them. How do they build this credibility? So credibility, so I can come from a lot of different places. So one, for example, is for the folks who've worked at a really big company, for example, you know they try to boast that as much on the resume because there's something to be said, right? If you've worked at Amazon or Google or AT and T or Verizon, right? There's there's some credibility that comes from there because uh, you know the person hiring you may have no idea what this other company is. It's a very small company. It's regional. There's some credibility. In, okay, they were hired by that company, so that maybe is a, a source of credibility. Uh, a case study you've done in the space, or something you've published in the space, or blogs that you write, or you know, a reference on LinkedIn, yes. right? So for example, someone looks up Lori, I'm considering hiring Lori, and I, I share that, right? And so those are examples of where you can build credibility. So building credibility is either you build your own, so you demonstrate expertise. So for example, if you have a case study proactive you've built, or, you know, if you're an engineer and you can show a portfolio of things you've done, things like that, or an architect could do that, or an artist, right? Depending on the roles or social media manager, these are all roles where you could potentially have a portfolio. So either you demonstrate your own or you borrow it from another source, right? So that's those are the two quickest ways to do that. And I don't know if using data in your resume is going to fall under this category or the logic category and, and compelling somebody, but the use of good data in your resume of your accomplishments, being able to use numbers, I increase sales by 50% or you know year over year, the company profitability went up 10% or, you know, when, whenever you can use those numbers, that helps to build that credibility. Absolutely. And for exactly that reason, right? So if, if I'm looking at five resumes and one of the resumes says, 
I took us from four million, you know, or my book of business started two million that I was handed, and I grew it to four million. So what happens is the reason there's credibility is it's clear, and I know exactly what that person accomplished. If instead it's, you know, I had a significant impact on my book of business and the total bottom line of the company. Well, I have no idea that it isn't able to build that same credibility with me because I have no idea what that means really, right? Right. And so I think people sell themselves short, in particular in sales, right? Not every role can you point to exactly what you did, but whether it's sales or it's in process improvement or efficiency or whatever it may be, I think it's, uh, or you know, maybe it's evaluation scores and your annual evaluations or whatever it is. The reason, you know, that is a little bit of both. There is some logic there from a credibility perspective, though. It allows you to understand and kind of, you know, objectively review that person's performance. And that, that definitely can help to build your credibility. What about engaging emotion? How do you do that? Is that something that you would do on in your cover letter to just kind of tell your story in your cover letter? Or how would you go about that? So, you know, the first is to kind of think of all the emotional levers you can pull, right? So you might pull, uh, for example, you know, one of the most powerful, but one of the most risky is, is fear. In that one, it's, uh, you know, you can't afford not to hire me, right? So if it's in a role, it's a very senior engineer role, and you've just come from a similar business, and you know they're having similar challenges. Well, your cover letter could say, you can't afford not to hire me because I've gone through this exact thing and there's significant pains that my previous employer went through and I helped them do that. You know, you can't afford not to hire me because you will otherwise go through the same pain. So that's an example of, you know, using fear, but in a way that's tactful, right? That is specific on what you mean by that. You could use, you know, so there, there, that's, it's about, you know, achievement, obligation, a scarcity, right? It could be that, you know, there's just not so many folks who have the kind of experience that I do from a scarcity perspective. So you could pull that lever. Right. And so look, there's how many enterprise level salespeople that have sold in um, manufacturing, for example, are there. So there might be a ton in technology, but you might be looking and you see the job description and looking for people with experience in manufacturing, but high level B2B complex sales. Well, then there could be scarcity. You know, there might be, um, you know, a hundred available people in the tech space, but there may not be that many manufacturers that could be scarce. So the idea is to kind of think through what's the emotion that I want the reader, the interviewer to feel? And then think about, okay, so how am I going to communicate that to them? And I think the reason that's so effective isn't only because it pulls that emotional lever, but it's that it requires empathy. The first step is, okay, what is it that I want Lori to feel once she reads my cover letter? That in itself is really valuable. And also in the interview process, I mean, that it just has to carry over into that process where you are, you continue to build that credibility and you play on those emotions and, and try to understand what their pain point is that you can solve for that company. I, and I think one of the most um, underutilized and appreciated skills in interviewing is asking great questions. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's a different kind of emotion. But if you think of the impression that you get, and I see this when I interview all the time, the impression that you can give by a few questions that are well-placed, that clearly demonstrate that someone's prepared, but also kind of get to the root of, they understand what you're looking for. So if you ask, you know, if a salesperson is asking questions about the onboarding plan and the challenges and the folk, you know, what areas we've got most experience in and, you know, case studies we have available and the resources that they'll have when they start, it tells me they're already putting themselves in those, you know, they're asking the questions that 
clearly demonstrate they know where things could be successful and where things might fall apart. And so I think that's another example of kind of that emotion. It's that feeling of confidence you get from the other party that's conveyed when they're asking the questions that kind of demonstrate to you that they've been there before. They've done something similar enough to understand. And I think that can be really powerful as well. So that it's particularly effective in the interview space. It's great when you are interviewing someone and you feel like they are going to come in and hit the ground running, that you're not going to spend a lot of time with them trying to get them up to speed. And as you said, those good questions can really demonstrate that and and give you an edge when you're interviewing. What about being logical and trying to be compelling with your story? So this is, in a sense, it's the easiest because human beings go to logic naturally. So that way it's, it comes natural and that's the easiest. But in a sense, it's the toughest because we can all do it, but how well do we do it? So the easiest response to this and kind of the most practical is whenever you can tell a story rather than, you know, so make a chart come to life or the data come to life, the better. So, you know, rather than, okay, these are the numbers you know, make it vivid and relevant to someone. Again, we're going to go to the interview example to be as relevant for folks as possible. So if you've been in hiring rooms before and you can say, Laura, I've sat in your shoes before. And one of the things that was most interesting to me back then was I was always looking for exactly as you said earlier, someone could hit the ground running. And what I realized is, of course, there's going to be differences organization to organization, but you don't have maybe at, at this company, kind of an onboarding team and someone who can really be responsible for that. So you've got to know this person is self-sufficient enough. And so let me tell you very briefly about the last three roles I've had. In the you know in the first one, I didn't have a single person responsible for my onboarding and development. And here's what I did in order to make that happen. You provide three examples. That would be a way of coming to life, right? And so now you've got empathy and you can communicate rather than what normally is easier to say is, you know, I've been in three companies and all three companies have done very well. And so because of that, I know I can hit the ground running. Well, the more compelling way is let's talk, okay, what did that look like? Right. And so that might include feelings or that might include, you know, setting up the stage for how exactly that, you know, what allowed you to do that or what made it so valuable to the previous companies. And a good interviewer will um, ask those behavioral interview questions and anybody that's going into an interview should be prepared for those behavioral interview questions because that will draw it out. But you definitely have to have those stories ready. And it's funny because if you think about some of your accomplishments and some of the stories that you can tell about yourself, sometimes those stories would fit and would allow you to answer a multitude of questions. Like if you prepare six or eight really good stories and the interviewer asks you a question, then you can pull one of those stories and make that fit and, and bring that back around to answer that question. I, I love that, Lori, because I think we, we partner with a, with a company that does some storytelling training. And what they do is you build a story kind of bank, if you will. And the story bank is if you think about it, so a story about, for example, how you started, how you were at a startup that had no training, no onboarding, very little guidance, was kind of bootstrap mentality, entrepreneur mentality, and you did your job, and then you actually set up the processes for people to come, and then you build a team, hypothetically. Well, that story could be about uh, management. That story could be maybe around your entrepreneurial spirit. That story could be around hitting the ground running. And that's a perfect example, because it is genuinely about all of those things. 
And so with, like you said, a bank of four, six, eight stories at the most, just about every interview question, because just about every core element of what people are looking for could be down to one of those. And so I love what you said. And I would say that's probably the most practical and valuable advice someone could get is, do you have a few stories you could go to that you could tell succinctly and with passion that really kind of communicate those core elements? And I think doing that would dramatically improve people's performance in a job interview. I really like the idea of a story bank. It makes so much sense because we all know people that have these story banks where they can just tell one story right after another. And sometimes you think, where are they going with this? But somehow they bring it around full circle and they they get back to the whatever spurred that thought in their head, like what made them tell that story. So yeah, I really like that concept of building the story bank. And then facilitating the action. How do we, one of the things that I always tell people when I'm coaching is that if you get out of that last interview and you have not asked about next steps, you've really done yourself a disservice because that gives you such an opportunity to allow the interviewer to go through that in their mind. Well, like, what are the next steps? It allows them to talk through it. It allows them to make some commitments to you. And then you know what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to follow up from there. So how do we get better at doing that? So two parts that we said, one very closely to kind of the next step asking questions piece. It is, it's interesting that most people think that and, and we hear this in negotiation. The best negotiators are, you know, smooth talkers. Most people think that it's the people talking that have control over a conversation. When in fact, you manage a conversation by asking great questions, right? You can take it wherever you go. That's if you think of the people who really can control conversations and manage conversations well, they set an agenda up front and then that allows the kind of pivot wherever they want to go. That's interesting you said that. It makes me think about this. And then actually, as a matter of fact, can you tell me more about that? All of a sudden you've made a pivot and it can be very smoothly done. And so from a facilitating action standpoint, one of the reasons I, I certainly support, I agree with the, the asking of the questions of, for example, hey, what are the next steps? Again, that's a way to start to control because if they say, you know, it's uh, a week from now, we'll get back to you. And then the week after that, we'll have another round, you know, that you can start to kind of get a sense for where they are because asking questions is both about what they're going to say back to you, the, the response, but also the tone and the confidence with which you get. And we, again, pulling from our negotiation, we say this all the time. And there's a lot that overlaps in persuasion and influencing that sometimes you ask a question, even if you know the answer, but you're trying to get a sense how they respond, it can tell you. For example, how they respond, it can tell you, are you one of you know, two or three candidates? And so it's a tough decision for them. Or are you one of 50 candidates and it's really early stage and they have no idea what exactly the process is because they're not even sure what they want. And right. so sometimes the answer will be the same. Well, what we're doing is, you know, we're, uh, first week we're doing first round interviews. The second round of interviews, we'll get back to you, but it's going to be with these three folks. And then you might expect a couple of weeks later. So it's it's more less what actually is being said and more, it's more how it's being said. Mm-hmm. So that's one. And the second is, you know, as an example of a way to facilitate action that's specific is to provide options. So I particularly like this. If you want to create that environment for someone to act, providing options is really helpful, typically around three. So why is it so helpful? Well, if you want to give people a sense of independence that they're making a decision, you want to give people a choice. But if you do fewer than that, one is no choice at all. Two feels like an ultimatum. Would you like to do this or that? Yeah. 
And if you do three, they start to feel like they're independent or making a choice. Now, of course, the idea is to provide three options, all of which are acceptable to you, but ideally would be acceptable to them also. So you're kind of working within the box you've created. Once you start getting beyond three, especially too far beyond three, then it becomes overwhelming. So I was I was going to refer to this James study, and I, I found it particularly interesting. It's in our book because the reason I like it is okay. So they had a they had a study for that was done in a, in a grocery store with hundred jams, and so end of aisle they had twenty four well between six and twenty four jams selections there. So what they found at first was wow, when you have twenty four jams, you do much better. It covers more shelf space visually. It's more stimulating. There's so many choices. More people would stop. But what's interesting is less would sell in total than when there were only six jams. And why was that? Six jams covered less visual. It was less stimulating that way. So less people would slow down, but significantly higher would convert because when you've got 24 jams, you've got black cherry, sour cherry, you know, uh, red, you know, all these different flavors. You start thinking, I didn't even know the four different apple types. It's overwhelming. It's easier not to make a decision and just walk away than it is to actually pick up. And so that kind of mentality, that over-analysis that's created there is exactly what makes around, usually we say three to five can be optimal. And so that's a great way to facilitate action. Give people a choice, all of which are acceptable to you in the three to five range, and you'll find they're much more likely to act that way. That's funny. I've always said I like shopping on the clearance rack because my options are so limited. I feel like I have to make a choice from there. <laughs> so yeah. it's not like the whole rest of the store. I can wander and and not find anything, but you go to that clearance rack, it's like it's the scarcity mentality and oh, I've got yeah. to get this before it goes away. And you could yeah. also go back in at the end process and pull back in the the fear of missing out. Like, okay, well, I'm going to continue to interview and make them think a little bit like, oh, this person might not be here if our if our hiring process truly is four weeks away. I like that because, and also you want to kind of level the playing field. I talk about this, I tell this to our sales team all the time, that we feel genuinely, right? Otherwise they wouldn't be on our team, that we we do great work and we have case studies to prove and make us feel confident that if we work with an organization, we will improve their sales. We will improve the procurement team, their leaders, whoever we're working with. So we feel very strongly about that. And if you really feel strongly about that, then it's an even playing field in the sense that, yes, they have the, the client is to control whether they hire us or not, and they have the purse strings, if you will. They hold them. The flip side is there's only one of us. And so we know what kind of impact we can have on people. And so we should bring, and not in an arrogant way, but we should know that, look, we've done this before, same as when you're getting hired. We've done it before. We're going to hit the ground running. You don't need to show us how to do it. It's a well-oiled machine with a great process. It's very efficient. And so we're the highest likelihood to give you the results that you want. And so I say that because, and that is in a sense what you want to do with interviewing, that's a sense in the conversations. You want to balance that playing field where it isn't, okay, the buyer has all the control because they have the person as well. Same as in the, you know, you're really interviewing both sides. When a job candidate's going to interview, if you're any good, you may be interviewing or considering other organizations as well. So it's as much about me making sure I want to work with and for you as it is that you want to select me. And so I think folks that understand that, but can balance it with humility, right? Because that's a fine line. You want to have the confidence in yourself that you bring a lot to the table if you're applying for the jobs that are a good fit. But you don't. You, it, there has to be humility there in general, not just kind of a pretend to be humble because that'll help you get the job, but that you understand that you've got a lot to learn and we all do. We appreciate our featured guest for joining the Find Your Niche podcast. Now, 
more career advice and stories from your host, Laurie Cole. One of the things that Andres talked about was having a story bank. I've heard them called accomplishment stories or achievement stories, but the bottom line is that you must have a story bank when you are getting ready to answer behavioral type interview questions. The STAR method gives you a straightforward format to tell a story by laying out the S for situation, T for task, A for action, and R for result. The situation is where you set up the scene and give details about your example of the story. In the task, you'll describe your responsibilities in that situation. In the action, you'll describe how you dealt with the situation and the result will let you talk about your actions and all of the great things you achieved. These stories don't have to be long, but using this method puts the stories in a digestible and compelling format, and it's an opportunity to showcase your talents and achievements. Is there something you need some guidance on in terms of your career? Email to laurie.cole at ihire.com. Thanks for listening.